to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwinniger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application that you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. I don't know if you've heard or not, but in recent legal issues with Twitter, it has come out that 95% of Twitter whistleblowers are bots. You know, I'm starting to believe that number for sure, given the number of followers on my personal Twitter account is got to be at least 90% bots. We just need them to follow the security Serengeti account. <laughs> we need more, more bots. As long as it blows up our numbers, it makes us look good. Instead of more dots, it's more bots. How much for Twitter? followers what do you mean like paying a fee so yeah i uh, want to buy 100 twitter followers interesting prices start from 27 cents per thousand followers wow what if we pretty what if we just a quarter for a thousand followers that means my following is worth like a penny <laughs> oh don't tie that to your self-worth though <laughs> don't be surprised if you suddenly find that our account has several thousand followers <laughs> It's a miracle. Anyways. <laughs> so anyways, our first article today is not an article at all. It's actually a legal filing. I was reading through Bruce Schneier's blog and he linked to another article about how people were trying to chase down information on the Twitter whistleblower Mudge, whose name, real name I cannot remember. That's funny. Anyways. And then somebody linked in there to a Rosen law firm, a global investor rights law firm announced that it filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of purchasers of securities of Twitter for the last two years, three years, 2020, 2021, 2020, three years. Yeah. So the, what the lawsuit is actually about boils down to basically five, five points, which are encompassed within the fact that Twitter made false or misleading statements or failed to disclose material adverse facts about the company's business operations and prospects. Point one, Twitter knew about security concerns on their platform. Point two, Twitter actively worked to hide the security concerns from the board, the investing public, and regulators. Point three, contrary to representations in SEC filings, Twitter did not take steps to improve security. Point four, Twitter actively refused to address security issues, which increase the risk of loss of public goodwill. And finally, when true details enter the market, the lawsuit claims investors will suffer damages. So this is basically being brought by the shareholders to say that the poor manner in which Twitter does security is impacting the stock price, which is going to cost the shareholders money. So they're going to sue them for damages. It's interesting, especially we because we've kind of talked about this for years about how you know there could be a there could be a you know impact to stockholders. But every time we've seen a publicly traded company get hit, their stock dips briefly and then comes right back up, with the exception of Solar Winds. <laughs> with the exception of Solar Winds. I'm surprised they haven't actually had a shareholder lawsuit because they got crushed and they have not come back. Huh. Well, the law, the well, the whole point of this is that the the shareholders are saying the security team knew it was bad and did nothing to fix it, uh, and that mm. may not have been the case with SolarWinds. 
That's you know, fair. they didn't they weren't bad or 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 purposefully failed to take material steps to improve the security, even though they knew they needed it. Huh. So this this is almost this is almost a self-flicking ice cream cone, though. If you think about it though, they sue the company to say, hey, you failed to to address the security concerns, which is going to lead to poor public will, which is going to then reduce the stock price, uh, which can also be reduced by and a lawsuit like this saying or or highlighting these issues. Yeah, just if you keep it in the news, it'll keep driving the stock price down. Huh. Yeah, I, I'm I'm I, yeah, I don't know. I saw that also Elon Musk added this allegation to the amended countersuit. Oh really? Yep. That's interesting. I wonder how that's gonna play out. I don't know. Looks like the stock price hasn't taken that much of a hit, though. I was taking a look at it, and it it went down a little bit, and it's kind of hung out down there. But uh, I think if the truth comes out about the bots, assuming that you know Elon is correct in his assessment, I think that will be what's going to be the most impactful. Because I almost the advertisers are 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 going to jump ship because they're not getting their. Uh, their impressions or whatever you want to call it that they expect to get, that's that's going to cause them some serious problems. I actually hope that this lawsuit is successful. I think that this is an excellent example of outside pressure getting people to do the right thing or at least do a better job of hiding it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is necessarily <laughs> outside pressure. This is actually the owners of the company because they bought stock. So they actually own the yeah. company. So this is the owners of the company telling the executive leadership of the company that's supposedly running this place, hey, you guys need to get your shit straight. Because often, you know, you hear about hostile takeovers, right? Yeah. And it sounds scary or whatever. But what a hostile takeover is, is really is owners of the company throwing out the executives who are mismanaging the company and replacing them with a different management to do it correctly. Yeah. It's just that the executives don't like it. So they you know, so they couch it in the terms of, of hostile takeover or whatever. But <laughs> we need to see more of actual owners, you know, leveraging their influence to get this kind of stuff to happen. Because what this kind of also says is that the, the the owners of the company would be happier if the company actually spent more on security and improving the security problems that are there. And would be willing to take whatever financial hit or or whatever that really entails that they spent that money on doing security versus just letting it go. All right. So what should we do about it, David? Dump Twitter stock before it totally crashes. <laughs> make sure you're sending your name to the lawsuit to make sure you get your money. I don't I don't know. I don't own a nickel at Twitter. So the next article is China accuses the NSA of hacking a top university to steal data. And this comes to us from Gizmodo and another article in the Hacker News, I think. Yeah. So the Chinese government claims that a, a top college has been infiltrated by the NSA, which is part of more than 10,000 cyber attacks, which has been launched at China over the past several years. Oh, say it isn't so. The U.S. would never do that. Of course not. We're not China, which has apparently led to the theft of 140 gigabytes of high value data, according to them. And they've actually escalated this to a formal diplomatic complaint. So the university in China is the Northwestern Polytechnic University, which apparently there's another one in California. But this one is in the Xi'an province. 
But the Jesus Mercy, according to U.S. reports, is the 425th best university in, of a list of global universities of 2005 uh, universities in total. The U.S. Justice Department refers to the school as a Chinese military university that is heavily involved in military research and works closely with the People's Liberation Army. China's National Computer Virus Emergency Response Center, that's not even a pronounceable acronym. It's got to uh, sound better in Chinese, right? There's I hope no so. way. <laughs> I mean, because the way, the, I mean, if they work acronyms, the way the United States works acronym is you come up with the acronym and then you get the words to fit it yeah, first. Yeah. Clever, clever name comes first every time. Right. Every time. Uh, but they are the equivalent of the DHS CISA. And they recently re- re- published a report accusing the NSA tailored access group, the TAO, you know, see, obviously. NSA knows how to do this, of this hack. And they said that the NSA used 41 hacking tools to break in, which included two zero-day exploits for the SunOS Unix-based operating system. And most people, I'm not sure how many people who listen to this podcast even have even heard of Sun, but it used to be big back in the day. Virtually no one uses SunOS today. And I'm sure the government still does quite a bit because it used to be quite prevalent there. As a matter of fact, when I worked for the Army, I became Solaris 8 certified as a system administrator. Yeah, it was fancy. And then I never used it again. But according to the, the Chinese Emergency Response Center, they said that the NSA got in by stealing account credentials for remote management and file transfer applications and used to hijack logins on targeted servers. So I'm not sure if they, you know, maybe it was in stages because why burn two zero days if you've already gotten in by stealing account credentials? But in the article, they reference a second hack, which I didn't remember hearing about in the, at the time, but back in February, the Chinese, China's Pangu lab claims that, claimed that the uh, BVP47 Backdoor on Linux was a tool by the Equation Group, and the Equation Group came was really came to light by the published archive from the Shadow Brokers in August of 2016, and that's how they tie these two th- that how they tie this backdoor to the NSA. That's interesting. So since that happened in 2016, they're saying that backdoor is still being used now. Is the date you have on here February 23rd, 2022? Well, that's when the article was published. Oh, okay. That so they referenced have, right. this back door, which came to light in 2016. Gotcha. All right. Because I was about yeah. to say, that doesn't seem like a very mature thing for them to be continually using that. Well, according to that article, they said that this had been used against more than 287 targets in academia, military, telecom, aerospace, energy, transportation, and financial institutions in 45 different countries mainly in Asia with China, Korea, and Japan, but also including Germany, Spain, India, and Mexico. And according to that article, it said that this backdoor had been in use for over a decade. That is ridiculous. I can't imagine something that, wow. So that was how... extremely sophisticated and well-designed backdoor to, to have that long of a lifespan. Now I'm looking at it. So advanced covert channel behavior based on TCP send packets. So interesting. Just, huh. Yeah, there'll be a link in the show notes to this article, which goes in depth into how that backdoor functions. Uh, we're, we're not really going to get into it a whole lot here. 
not smart enough to understand. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you'll you'll understand when you, when you take the time to dig into it. But according to Kaspersky, the equation group is known as the crown creator of cyber espionage. And Kaspersky says that the, the equation group has been inactive or has been active since 2001. And used as and has been known to use zero day exploits to infect victims and retrieve data, et cetera, et cetera. And this is also tied into Suxnet, which has pretty much been tied to the NSA and Israeli. Uh, but this got me thinking about, you know, this information coming to light and Kaspersky talking about it is, you know, if there wasn't a a, a major malware defensive company like Persky. If much, of, if much of this would come to light, considering that it's U.S.-based malware, I couldn't find the article that I'd read previously where a it was either a McAfee or a Symantec rep uh, was lamenting the fact that they had identified malware created by the NSA because they felt it was what's the, not treasonous so much as their identifica- identification of a U.S. government malware could possibly help terrorists or U.S. adversaries if they were using the McAfee software or the Symantec software to detect malware. Yeah. But then conversely, they don't want to make exceptions for all that either because then they'll lose out on business if people know that they're you know whitelisting NSA malware. I wonder if that's how it stayed undetected for so long. It could be. It's hard to it's hard to say what, what goes on behind the scenes in you know these security companies because there's there's all there's 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 been I, I don't I don't know if they're necessarily confirmed rumors or not, but that the NSA and Microsoft work very closely together to determine which vulnerabilities are exposed and patched versus others. Because reading over this article, it doesn't look like it's that like like the the communications channel is very innovative innovative and interesting, but when looking at the, what the malware does, like it executes PowerShell scripts through scheduled tasks, like that's not all that. I don't know. I feel like somebody should have seen that after 10 years. It uses SMB to log in as the administrator account. Like nobody ever did any kind of detections where they said, oh, the administrator account's logging in at 1 a.m. Well, that's kind of weird. We should go check out this box. Although maybe it hid so well that they just regarded all that as weird anomalous behavior and never really found the, the, the malware source. Maybe that's Maybe that's where the like people detected what it did, but they never detected the backdoor itself. Well, it's also not a homogeneous environment. You know, we were talking yeah. about 45 countries, 287 different targets. Uh, no, so that, but that's why I'm saying that I'm, I'm surprised that nobody found it out of all of those people. But well, I don't think I don't think you can say that no one found it because obviously because we know about those numbers, someone did find it. It's just what what I think is surprising is that the users of the the backdoor were confident enough yeah. in the way it operated that they continued to use it no, even right. though it probably had several discoveries over the past yeah. decade. No, you're you're right. You're right. This article is not necessarily about that it's undetectable. This article is the attribution. So you're right. It may have been detected many times. No, but just nobody attributed it to NSA. Right. And in and in in April, the China Emergency Response Center released a technical analysis of a malware platform called Hive that was supposedly used by the CIA. You know, in the article that references that this is China, the pot calling the kettle black, but just to note that the United States call on that a military university, when in the United States, virtually every 
University is an American military university. And here's a quote from David Honey. It's an awesome name. The Deputy Undersecretary for Defense for Research and Engineering, who says, as a federal department within the largest research and development investment, the DOD must continue to make strides in removing the barriers of equal opportunity in contracting and research par partnerships. And the DOD has 14 university-affiliated research centers, and the DOD gave at least $118 billion in 2022 to American universities with a plan to give at least 10% more money to American universities, which apparently performed 54% of DOD-sponsored basic research. I assume the other 46% is probably defense contractors, because the Defense Department itself doesn't doesn't really do much research on its own. And I have a, we'll have a couple of links in the show notes to some quotes by U.S. government officials, including Dwight Eisenhower, that laments how much research is being done by the federal government versus allowing that research to take place within the private sector. And it's actually a drain on the ability of the United States private sector to remain competitive in the world because virtually no scientific research takes place in the private sector in the United States anymore. None? I didn't say, hmm. I didn't say none, virtually none. I think it's something like 95% of research is conducted by the federal government or with federal government grants. Hmm. There'll be a link in the show notes to a, a white paper called The Pentagon Versus the Economy, which gives some really sobering numbers as far as how much money the U.S. government spends on research versus the private sector and the, the, the detrimental effects of that. That's kind of shocking. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. But hey, at least we've got our, our social media. As, hey. That's really where we want research at. All the private sector research is going into manipulation, <laughs> psychology and manipulation of people. That's fair. There is one thing that I found interesting in this article. The Chinese spokesperson Mao Ning said that the U.S. was the strongest cyber competitor. And the quote was, as the country that possesses the most powerful cyber technologies and capabilities, the U.S. should immediately stop using its prowess as an advantage to conduct thefts and attacks against other countries. It should respond. She didn't actually say this, but I feel like there should be a they should in there. They should responsibly participate in global cyberspace governance and play a constructive role in defending cybersecurity, which is, of course, hilarious coming from the Chinese government. But this is kind of ridiculous. What good is being the best and being like, but we're not going to do anything? With in other words, you know, it doesn't make sense not to press your advantage when you have right. it. Right. We should listen to China and let them overtake us. And, and then we should press our disadvantage, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, I think he's, he's, he's kind of speaking to the hypocritical nature of the United States, saying that the Chinese should be attacking civilian com companies and sealing their secrets and stuff like that when the United States appears to be doing similar things. But not terribly surprising that either one of them do this. It just makes sense. Yeah. But why this matters is oh, this real article really it came to my attention because I think it must have been uh, just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how you rarely hear about the United States government conducting hacking activities, and we expected that you know obviously they're doing it, but why don't we hear about it? So it is out there. It's just not very well heard of. And is there anything you can do about it? Not really. Uh, <laughs> you know, just be aware this going on. And if you're involved in, you know, if you're at a university 
it's almost certain that your university is conducting research based on grants or actually working with the Defense Department to do research. So it's not terribly surprising if you find the Chinese attacking American universities trying to get the same kind of information which we were attempting to get from the Chinese university. Yeah, and I actually wondered if there are reasons for these internal U.S. groups like NSA or CIA to target U.S. companies. I know I know they're not legally allowed to do that, but if the companies are multinational and they have offices in other countries or if they're working with China or they're working with other countries that have been targeted, I, I just wonder if as an employee of a U.S.-based company, if you may find yourself being targeted by your own country. It could be if they can convince the FISA court, which is pretty much a rubber stamp, that ah. you know you're involved in activity activity with a uh, with another country. It's like uh, what TikTok in the United States. Yeah, which I don't think we've talked about, but at some point we probably should. But oh well, I'm sure it'll come up in the news sometime. <laughs> they can't avoid us forever. So for our third article, we have a piece of late breaking news that came out after we sat down on Wednesday to pick out what articles we wanted to discuss this week. Uber Uber is reporting a security incident. The potential attacker has been sharing a lot of information with somebody else, and it's all over Twitter. From what the potential attacker shared, it looks like they social in, socially engineered an Uber employee. Then they bombarded them with 2FA prompts. They were attempting to register their own, the attacker's device is legitimate. And then when after an hour, when the Uber user did not accept any of those, they called them posing as Uber IT and told them they needed to accept the 2FA prompts to stop them. And the employee did. So then they had access to the network over VPN as this employee. Once in the network, they found a share with a PowerShell script that had admin creds for psychotic. And from there it was over. They got everything in Dicotic. They got all the privileged accounts and had the run of the place. You know, that doesn't make any sense at all. The, the admin, cred admin creds to Dicotic in a PowerShell script. Dicotic, it, it, I mean, in case you're unaware, Dicotic is a PIM or a PAM, depending on how you want to categorize it, which is privileged identity management or privileged access management. And it's designed to house secrets that you can then programmatically access in scripts so you don't hard code credentials in those scripts. <laughs> the whole point of it is the whole point of it. And well, I wonder if this is a misnomer where they say admin creds for psychotic because this makes it sound like it's actually psychotic admin credentials versus admin credentials which are within psychotic. I don't mm. know exactly which way that is, you know, depending on the way they worded it. But either way, the whole point of psychotic and I've actually used Psychotic before, and I've done this programmatically. It's not hard. It's very straightforward and very easy to do, not to have to power to hard code credentials within a, a script to leverage them from Psychotic. So this just, I'm dumbstruck by this one. That is interesting. I assumed it was like credentials for like an API, but hmm, yeah, interesting. I wonder if that's just somebody who is ignorant of how Psychotic worked. They would have to know. be if they did it that way. Yeah. So anyways, as proof, since the attacker, anybody can pretend to be attacker and say whatever they want to say, this attacker shared screenshots of their IAM portal for Uber, the G drive with like over one petabyte of information in there, vCenter, Slack, and their Sentinel-1 EDR portal as a member of the IR team. So a lot of this detailed info comes from a thread from Bill 
Demercopy on Twitter, where he collected a lot of this information into a giant thread. Was he directly talking to this guy or did he just scour Twitter for the posts? I think he scoured Twitter for the posts. I don't, I think the way that he phrased it, I think the way that he says he's security at Microsoft. I don't know. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think that he said that this was him talking to him. I think he was giving screenshots of somebody else's conversation. Okay. But again, this is one of those situations though, where Uber should be thankful that the, the attacker is an idiot. <laughs> yeah. He does mention at some point that the attacker is apparently an 18 year old. And does the one asked what he's going to do with the, like he doesn't, he didn't try to ransomware it. He didn't apparently is not really doing much with his access. Yeah. He's not getting anything out of it other than what's the street cred or I don't know, even, you know, what he's getting out of it at all. Maybe a job offer from Uber. Yeah. Or a, a room at the, the Hilton for the, from the FBI. Somebody pointed out on Twitter today that there's a internet commander job posted at Uber. That apparently has been posted for a while, but it was refreshed yesterday. Opportunities. I mean, senior incident security incident commander, U.S. remote available. Hmm. And a security incident commander too. Like, I, you know, that'd be kind of cool to have a commander in your name. What are you? I'm a commander. Yeah, business cards made up with it. I wonder how many applications this guy submitted while he was in. <laughs> but it seemed like the guy had no plan. You know, he spent all this time and effort breaking into Uber, and then he had no plan about what he was actually going to do with his access once he got in. It's probably but, shocked that he got in and was like, "That's like the dog chasing the car." Yeah, you know, never really expects to catch it, and then he does, and he's like, "I don't know now what to do now." But if you're an attacker, I would think you would plan a little bit farther ahead, thinking, "I could catch this car." Yeah. So discussion point number one, two factor is awesome until the user gets annoyed with it. We've definitely, I've definitely been seeing a lot of this lately in the last couple of years. At first, when you moved to two factor, the attackers, like when that, when a two factor started getting real big after the phishing, you know, the big phishing in like 2017, 2018, then, then people moved to MFA and phishing dropped off and credential, well, the phishing kept going, but the credential theft dropped off. But then the attackers realized that an awful lot of people will just accept it if you just hit it often enough. So someone in that thread, I don't remember if that was the same guy, Bill DeMarcapi, or somebody else suggested phishing-resistant MFA. They suggested having a hardware token plugged into your computer or something like a certificate on your system before it allows you to join the VPN. Yeah, and I think this also is one of those things where it's better to have push notifications turned off as well. Yeah. I know I've used Microsoft two-factor in the past and i get push notifications at weird times like whenever the session expires it'll you know at 10 p.m it'll pop up on my phone and say do you wish to get access to this and i always hit no but some people apparently just hit yes well they probably just assume that's the way the system works so if it's asking then it's obvious that you should you know push it and and from what i've seen of you know mfa training there's not a whole lot which actually goes into push notifications and explaining how those work and when you should use them, when you shouldn't be using them, when you should be suspicious of push notifications. Mm -hmm. So I think this is also a training problem where users simply are not well-trained on MFA itself. They're kind of given the the token and saying, you know, there you go, run with it. Mm. 
A second thing that I noticed in there was the attacker adding themselves as a legitimate device, which is interesting, which makes me wonder about detecting that. I don't think you can detect on just a new device being added. That's probably really noisy depending on the size of your company, but maybe someone suggested in a, the, the Twitter thread alerting on an MFA reset. I don't know how often that happens. Maybe trying to connect that with a ticket in your ticketing system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the successful brute force alert seems like a good one, actually where you have you know five failed MFA attempts followed by a successful one. That one is very, that one tends to be pretty noisy when you apply it to accounts because if people forget their password, they tend to try a whole bunch of passwords, then they reset it, then it works. But I don't know how often that happens on MFA. I may be looking at that myself next week. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea, especially if you're talking about an organization where you don't have a lot of tokens. Personally, I have a lot of MFA tokens. And sometimes I have the screen scrolled wrong and I'm entering the wrong one. Uh, yeah, but, but how often do you not find that five? Yeah, five or six or seven times. I, I think you probably put the threshold pretty high, not like two times, but. Yeah, I mean, I start getting sweaty palms after the second time <laughs> the MFA fails and I'm like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah, I, I had this happen when I went to .comp in Las Vegas. My two-factor auth stopped working and I'm, pretty sure it was because of the time zone change. Uh, even though my two-factor off on my phone and my phone adjusted time zones, because as soon as I got back to the East Coast, it worked fine. So somehow that hmm. was not, not I don't know, didn't self-correct. Interesting. So second item, Pam is awesome, unless the attacker gets access to it. Well, it's awesome if you know what the hell you're doing with it, <laughs> which I'm skeptical, like I said, based on what they had done with the iconic there. That's Completely messed up. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, the Twitter thread from Mr. Demarcopi points out that the PowerShell script is concerning with the API credentials or the, the credentials. I guess we don't know if they're API credentials, but most companies probably have something similar going on. Although given what you said about how PAM works, maybe they don't. Well, it depends on which PAM you're implementing because depending on the solution, there's varying levels of difficulty in implementing the removal of hard-coded credentials from scripts. Dichotic, dead simple, easy to do. But in something like a cyber arc, that's, I think their prices come down, but it used to be $5,000 a pop to do that. And like four to eight hours of professional services to help you set that up. So depending on which, which actual tool you've implemented for PAM, there's you know different challenges. That's fair. Because my next question here was a way not to use creds and scripts, but you kind of mentioned it. But a, an alternative that I've definitely seen people complain about is logging command lines and process executions, which may include credentials as well. Although it sounds like having a properly implemented PAM makes that a non-issue as well. Yeah. Because sometimes what I've done before is if the script is manually run and not you know automated, then rather than hard code the credentials within the script, you'll prompt for credentials when you execute mm. it yeah. or have them as variables on the command line, which is probably the worst way to do it. Because if you do it as a prompt, depending on which tool you're using, I've used Python before, which obscures that yeah, on just, there. But if you have them as a variable to the script, then those probably would show up in the command line logs if someone yeah. were to get your, your into your logging system. Yeah. One suggestion was reducing the window with credential rotation. That can get really annoying fast, but it will prevent issues where older forgotten scripts hanging out in weird places might make you vulnerable. But again, sounds like a properly implemented PAM makes that a non-issue. Yeah, completely prevents that because it also, 
allows for you to rotate the passwords it's without even to do use, any right? updates to your yeah. scripts. And the password automatically just changes with that integration. That sounds amazing. And I've used an open source PAM called TeamPass, which actually separates the accounts between administrators and those who manage the secrets. So if you're an administrator to the TeamPass application, you cannot manage secrets. You cannot put in secrets. You cannot see secrets. Doesn't matter. You can't do it as an administrator. And if you're a, a regular user who has access to secrets, you cannot be an administrator to access the backend functioning of the system. And that's the only system I've seen with that kind of separation of duties. And I thought that was really innovative, innovative and a real good way to go about it. And there'll be a link in the show notes to the TeamPass website. Like I said, it's open source. I've used it before, and it also has this integration that I talked about with Dicotic, and it was simple to implement in order to prevent the passwords from being hard-coded in scripts. That sounds super interesting. Within the article, it also mentions that the credentials for a super admin uh, to be used only in a security emergency to help recover IT systems was also compromised. And this seems like, you know, if you have a brick glass account like this. It needs to be buying glass? Yeah, offline. You know, I've seen this type of thing before where people actually put it in an envelope and put it into it in a safe for this type of account. But my guess is that this account was simply stored in Thicotic like the rest of the administrator accounts or rest, the rest of the accounts and was simply accessed that way. But if you have an account that's like this, this should be an extremely rare event, in which case you should go through the trouble of keeping it offline and accessing it that way versus keeping it digitally somewhere, which can be compromised. In addition, the attacker announced their presence on Slack and in return, IT ordered everyone off Slack, but a number of people thought it was a practical joke and just stayed on there and kept talking on Slack, which is kind of amusing. He announced himself like Dr. Nick. Hi, everybody. I don't, he did announce that there was a security breach and they'd been breached. So anyways, why does this matter? These issues are not specific to Uber. Everybody's going to point at Uber and be like, oh, this couldn't happen here, but it totally could. Except maybe the Pam thing. And the move fast and break things, maybe we shouldn't be pursuing this so much. Yeah, I heard a counter argument to that one time that seemed to make a whole lot of sense to me that if you didn't have time to do it right the first time, when are you going to have time to go back and fix it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings on that because I also don't like it when everything is super slow, like molasses, and you're going through a thousand checklists. But there definitely has to be a middle ground where you're doing it doing it well enough to, to not rack up this huge technical debt. Well, if you plan it, I think if you plan it properly, you can go fast and break things. But part of that planning has to go back and remediate the the the, the things you skipped or the shortcuts you made after you proved out whatever it was you were moving fast to create. You know, you do the MFA or the MPV, I'm sorry, minimum viable product, mm -hmm. MVP. Yeah, MVP first. And, you know, once you got your MVP and you say, yeah, this is good, this is the way we need to do it. Then you go back and you recycle that through a formal process in order to shore up those gaps or those shortcuts that you took while you were, you were doing your MVP. That works. The attacker also said the security was awful, which sounds very much like a parallel to the discussion we had last week about the interview with the access broker. Yeah. I mean, if the 18 year old kid got in, you know, and didn't even realize he was going to get in or wasn't prepared to get in, 
what should you do about it? Well, first thing is, the first thing that comes to mind is, are you watching your MFA prompts? Like I said, I think a successful brute force type detection might be more effective there, but you should probably be at least looking at them, bringing them into your sim, looking for correlations, like having a, if you don't do single atomic content anymore, like you probably shouldn't, I can think of a couple correlations where you know, MFA and something weird, MFA brute force attempts combined with maybe an impossible travel alert or something would be really interesting. Should you be revisiting your MFA? Like David said earlier, maybe push notifications aren't ideal. Are you watching well, your... Oh, sorry. Well, not only that, but are your tra- people actually trained on MFA or is everybody just assuming everybody understands how MFA works? It pops up, I hit yes, right? Well, apparently, but obviously just based on this intrusion alone, it seems obvious that FA isn't just one clear cut, perfect thing that everybody understands in a simplistic fashion. There needs to be some kind of training and understanding by our users on how MFA functions and when they should and should not accept those notifications. Yeah. Are you watching your PAM? Where are the admin creds for that? Is it configured correctly? Are you leaving credentials scattered like breadcrumbs across the environment for the attacker to find? Yeah. And one thing you can do for the PAM is usually PAMs are divided into folders or groups. So if you have a, a PAM for an entire organization, maybe your database administrators, they have their own folder within the PAM. What you can do for some of those is if you're monitoring the logs for the PAM, when someone outside of that group accesses that group's folder, they get a notification. So that if the database team has got five people in it and a sixth person outside of that team accesses that folder, that team gets a notification saying, hey, someone who's not in your team accessed your folder and they can alert security on it. You could try to set that up so that kind of stuff goes automatically to your IR team, but that could be really messy depending on the way your organization functions. And the IR team would have no idea whether that was really legit or not, or whether that was supposed to happen or something else because the, the database team could have been working with the PAM administrator to do something. And that's why that alert tripped off. But they, that, those kind of granular or subset alerts can also help improve the security where you're not relying on the IR team necessarily to perform a security function. So you kind of distribute that out to the broader base within the entire organization. All right. And are your IR security creds mixed in with your normal creds? This is something that's been interesting to me because I have always seen in security operations books and classes, they recommend the SOC has a completely separate and defined infrastructure and separate sets of credentials and all that. But everywhere I've ever worked, they're always been mixed in together. It's because that's expensive. Yeah. Well, one thing to consider is having emergency comms set up for your IR team in case the corporate comms get compromised. So maybe mobile phone chat app that is only used by the IR team so that they can communicate securely during the during an incident when your your enterprise chat has been compromised or your enterprise email has been compromised. But one thing you mentioned in the notes here also, Matt, was looking for passwords in scripts. So I've actually done this at different organizations using Veronis, which is a data management tool, which you can set up those kind of alerts for, or an EDR tool to look for those kind of things. And looking for passwords and scripts can sometimes be easy and sometimes be hard. But if you consider the way that variables are declared within certain applications or certain scripting languages, like uh, PowerShell, where you have the dollar sign before the variable, you may have something that looks for a dollar sign password 
or the uh, some the very uh, some variation in the word password and monitoring for that so you can identify where people have attempted to hard code passwords into scripts or they're storing them in a file or in a spreadsheet or something like that. All right. And finally, if you're looking for a job and incident response, feel free to go apply to Uber. I'm sure they're going to have a bunch of new security jobs opening real soon. We've got a couple IR. Well, they've got a couple there now. We've got a couple there now. <laughs> Matter of fact, if you get in the door right now, maybe you can be the commander for this incident. That would be, you know, they talk about throwing someone off into the deep end and that would be right there. Yeah. With a, with a cinder block. With a cinder block. Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 